This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan, on Gadigal land. And me, Tegan Taylor, on Jagera and Turrbal land. Today, an achievable way to reduce the numbers of knee replacements by a third at an annual saving of nearly $400 million a year. And does it work to pay people to lose weight? On weight, it's a population-level issue that needs a population-level focus. So which interventions actually work? And Norman, it's been a big couple of days in health. The Strengthening Medicare report was released on Friday. It's not government policy yet, but it was chaired by the health minister, Mark Butler. So what were its key recommendations? Well, there were a lot, far too many for us to uh, talk about here. You can get it online. But um, if you look, and people are cherry picking to pick out what their favourite ones are. So I'll do the same thing. I'll cherry pick my favourite one. Look, there are various things. It's about access. It's about workforce. It's about innovation. And, you know, it really is quite a good report, which needs a lot of flesh put onto it in terms of how it translates into action on the ground. So it's about access, access to affordable primary care. And what we're talking about with primary care here is care in the community, the first place you go to for your care. So it's not just general practice, it's physiotherapy, it's nursing uh, and, and so on. I mean, even emergency departments come into primary care, but that's not the focus here. The focus here is to re- reduce the demand on, on, on that. Now, one of the things that we'll talk about quite a lot over the next few months is something called voluntary patient registration. It's about how people with diseases, illnesses that are going to last a long time, maybe the rest of their life, get coordinated care that's not fragmented, that's wrapped around by their general practice. And they're going to, people are going to be encouraged to voluntarily register with a specific general practice uh, to get that sort of wraparound care. And the, Is this different to my health record? Because that, that already exists. Well, with my health record, um, that's a key part of the recommendations, which is that my health record needs to be modernised. Uh, there needs to be an acceptance that the, the, the data in there are shared um, and that they can be used for healthcare planning. Um, and we've got to get over this sort of concern about privacy to some extent to be able to use that more efficiently. No, this, this is about, um, this is different. This is about um, physically registering with a general practice to get your coordinated care and uh, in a team-based situation. So the idea here is moving away from the single practitioner working in isolation. Essentially, modern medicine is a, t- is, is a team sport and you've got to be able to uh, uh, harness the skills of various people. Now, another theme uh, that's very important in the report is what's work called working to the maximum scope of practice. And nobody in one well, sort of sweeping generalisation, but very few uh, clinicians in the primary care sector are actually working to their full scope of practice. In other words, you're trained as a nurse, but you're not actually practising to do the things that you passed your exams in and that you're qualified to do, or with a little bit of extra training you could do. General practitioners aren't doing that. So you have GPs measuring blood pressure, you have GPs looking in kids' ears, um, and that takes them away from some of the more difficult, challenging clinical situations that they could be dealing with and are trained to deal with. And the nurses trained to do blood pressure and and looking at ears, then they could be doing those jobs. That's right. And nurse practitioners uh, can prescribe. And so you can get independent practitioners 
working within the general practitioner setting so that nurses are working fully to their practice. They're not just changing bandages. I mean, I'm being unfair because nurse, practice nurses do an awful lot more than that, but they could be doing even more, freeing up the GP to do what they're doing. But you've got to fund it. And general practices are not properly funded for nursing and they're not properly funded for GPs. So you've got to get more money in. But the point the report makes is that if you just pour more money in to what they're doing uh, in the same way as you're paying for it at the moment, you won't get any changes. So you've actually got to change the way you fund general practice. And they talk about innovation, doing things in different ways and learning. And they're, they're pretty, very complimentary of the, about the community-controlled model in Aboriginal communities, Aboriginal-community-controlled health services. And there's an implication in there that maybe we could learn from that to help put consumers... Um, not just in the, not in the driver's seat, but at least helping to design primary care systems that suit them. And there's also an acceptance in the report that rural and remote Australia probably requires different solutions to the cities, and those have got to be developed as well. That's just a smattering. Oh, yeah, that's just like a very broad overview. We'll definitely be coming back to that in the coming weeks and months. Another piece of news from the end of last week, Norman, the Therapeutic Goods Administration has approved psilocybin, which is the active compounded magic mushrooms and MDMA for prescribing, but in a, a limited way. So they've approved psilocybin for the treatment of treatment-resistant depression. So this is people who've got depression and it's not responding to traditional treatments. And um, MDMA, which is essentially ecstasy, for the treatment of treatment-resistant post-traumatic stress disorder. Now, there is some evidence for both of these from randomised trials. It's not strong, but it is there. With psilocybin, the evidence is that you've actually got to have a psychedelic experience on the psilocybin in a guided way with a therapist who actually knows what they're doing. So it's not a simple solution. And what, they've, what they're talking, what, what this system is going to require are authorised psychiatrists who have got the authority to prescribe these drugs. But it's not necessarily in a terribly coordinated way. There are not very many clinical guidelines attached to this. And equally, the TGA has not approved uh, or registered psilocybin or MDMA medications. Yeah, where are they actually um, thinking people would actually get this from? Is there even any supply or manufacture that's legal? Well, uh, there may well be an, allowance, uh, uh, an ability for pharmacists to compound these products because if you're going to get them on the illicit market, you don't know what's in them. So there may well be a compounding a, a possibility there or maybe some pharmaceutical uh, organisations might come in to seek registration. But in the meantime, there's going to be, have to be other solutions. So some interesting issues around that. Yeah. So is there, what's the next step with the MDMA psilocybin thing? I'm assuming if you've got treatment resistant depression, you can't just wander into your local no, you're psychiatrist going, and ask for it. The GP is going to have to know who the authorised psychiatrists are. And uh, this doesn't start to the 1st of July. So there's time to get this organised to some extent. Well, Australians of a certain age, when they get together, talk about two things, I've heard, because I'm not of that age, their colonoscopies and their knees. Norman, which one are we going to talk about today? Well, we're going to talk about knees, but this one is for you too, because I'm trying to help you avoid having to talk about your knees in 20 years' time. Okay. The, the rate of knee replacement surgery pre-COVID was, has been going up at just under 3% per year in Australia. So it's 27% in a decade. In 2021, there were over 68,000 knee replacements reported to the National Joint Replacement Registry. 
And for most part, the reason to have the knee replacement was osteoarthritis. Now, it's well known that knee osteoarthritis is commoner the heavier you are, but not many studies have looked at how you got to that point by middle age and the impact of your weight gain trajectory. In other words, how you've gained weight over the years. This is not you, Tegan, this is other people, of course. But a study following the diet and lifestyle of over 24,000 Melbournians from early adulthood through to their early 60s has found, by linking them actually to the National Joint Replacement Registry, going back to you know, linking hospital records and, so on, records and so on, this is one of the benefits of it, that if they'd been able to change the steady creep of kilos during those years and move their trajectory downwards, one in three knee replacements might have been avoided at a saving of $373 million each year. Professor Flavio Sicutini is head of rheumatology at the Alfred Hospital in Melbourne and was the senior researcher on the study. We looked at patterns of weight gain and we found six different patterns of weight gain from the age of about 18 to 21 through to the mid-60s. And for every one of those patterns, we looked at the number of joint replacements in that group. Now, we asked, well, what would happen if everybody who was in one of the patterns of weight gain went down by one. So we didn't try and make people all normal, healthy weight, just simply one trajectory down. And what we found is that if you did that and simply just didn't gain as much as you were predisposed to gain, that we would end up preventing about 30% of knee replacements at a cost of $370 million. And when we had a look at what weight we're talking about, we're talking about a weight difference over 40 years of 8 to 12 kilos. But what we also know is that people on average will gain half to one kilo a year. And that's a very relentless rate of weight gain. You know, people don't suddenly wake up one day having gained massive amounts of weight. It's this very relentless weight creep that happens. So it's this slow weight creep over many years that we're not considering and targeting. Do we um, understand the causes of that weight creep? I don't think we do. But if you turn it around and ask the question, well, how many calories or what sort of energy balance difference are we talking about? It's actually only seven kilocalories a day or 30 kilojoules, which to put it in perspective is 10 minutes of extra walking per week or two less squares of chocolate a fortnight. What we even see with our patients with knee osteoarthritis when we did a study, there wasn't a person around that didn't know that they are carrying a bit too much weight and should try and lose it. But what we're also seeing is that you see a person in their early 40s who might have some knee pain. They might be carrying two or three extra kilos and then they get advice to lose weight. And we know that people don't tend to lose weight. And so what we do is we then see someone 10 years later who has a bit more knee pain and then we say, oh, well, you know, you need to lose weight. But in the meantime, they've gained another five kilos. 
And the problem is that once you're carrying a lot of weight, you've already got the joint damage and you won't reverse that damage. And the data also says you need to lose about 7.5% of your weight in order to have a clinically significant reduction in knee pain. Now, I'm not suggesting people shouldn't lose weight, but we already know that that's not something people can easily do. So So you're arguing for interventions to stop the kilo creep? My point in that is that that is potentially an achievable goal. I have a sense that we're fiddling while Rome burns because we keep focusing on weight loss. But the very people we are advising to lose weight and pushing this idea of weight loss are then slowly, slowly gaining weight. And I don't think there is an awareness that even if you're carrying a few extra kilos, If you turn around and don't gain anymore, if the whole community didn't gain more, we would be kilos better off. Now, I think what's nice about our study is it's actually potentially put a dollar value to the potential implications of targeting this kilo creep. And one of the key issues with the kilo creep notion, it's not mutually exclusive from weight loss. It's acknowledging that the way we live is different to what it used to be like in the past. But rather than saying you've got to be slim, you've got to be slim, we're simply saying, yes, you need to lose weight if you can, but whatever you do, don't don't gain it. So one of the key things has to be, awareness that this is a feasible goal. And I think it fits in with the recent Australian of the Year who is now focusing on teaching people to love and appreciate their body and focus on health. Because I think one of the other problems is that our focus on pushing weight loss when we know it isn't successful is we're tending to keep shaming people that aren't losing the weight. For example, we know that 50% of obese women have not attended an appointment if they thought they were going to be weighed. What I'm suggesting is while we're telling people to lose weight, no one says, think about strategies you can use in your own life to just halt this slow kilo creep. For every kilo you carry, you load the knee by four kilos, but also fat is metabolically active, so you're effectively loading a squishy joint. What we have found clinically is that when we advise people that not gaining weight is really a valuable goal, people almost eyes light up because finally there's something they can potentially do. Flavia, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Professor Flavia Sicutini is head of the musculoskeletal group at Monash University. Well, despite Flavia saying that telling people to lose weight doesn't seem to work, Norman, you've got a story on whether paying people to lose weight works. Yeah, never say never. That's the health report's motto. (laughs) Associate Professor Melanie Jay of New York University has done a randomised trial of different ways of paying obese people to achieve sustainable weight loss. We know that financial incentives generally, but not always, for weight loss will, in the short term, lead to some weight loss. 
not all the studies show that, but there has always been a worry that financial incentives, A, don't necessarily lead to lasting change, and B, that you might be somehow quashing intrinsic motivation to keep doing the behaviors once the incentive is gone. So that was one of the things that we were also very interested in with this study. So describe the people that you were studying here and what you exactly did for each group. We did this study in New York and Los Angeles, and we recruited people if they had to come from a zip code that is listed as a low-income neighborhood. So they were all given a one-year subscription to a fairly recognized, people would recognize what this program was, but it does get results in terms of weight loss. And on top, you added the financial incentives. Right. So there were three arms. Everybody got what we call resources only. So the resources only arm was our control group, and they got free Weight Watchers. But in addition, you know, which is a kind of an intensive program, they meet weekly, and they got a one-year membership. In addition, they got Fitbit and told about physical activity recommendations. They received self-monitoring materials, so to write down what they're eating and also to weigh themselves. We gave them scales because self-monitoring, there's some evidence of self-monitoring of weight leads to more weight loss. So all three arms got that, but th that's all the control group received. The outcome-based and the goal-directed received financial incentives on top of that each month, depending on what we were incentivizing and what they accomplished. So the goal-directed one was if you turned up at Weight Watchers on a regular basis, you got paid. Mm -hmm. Right. If you turned up at Weight Watchers, if you tracked what you're eating, if you tracked your weight, and if you met physical activity recommendations. And there was a pay scale. So some people did some of it and some people did others, but they got paid each month for that. And each month they were told, and this is a behavior economics strategy, they were told what they would have made had they done all the things that could have made the money and how much they were getting. So there was a little bit of a loss aversion built into it that people wanted to get paid the entire amount. So that was thought to be motivating. So it wasn't all or nothing. It was graded yeah. according to the degree to which you complied with what you signed Correct. up to. And then the outcomes-based received money depending on what percentage of their weight they lost each month. When you reviewed then at six months, what did you find? We found that both financial incentives arms lost more weight than their resources only arm. There wasn't much of a difference in average weight loss between the two different incentive arms at six months, but there were some interesting things at 12 months. The goal-directed group kind of continued to lose weight between six and 12 months where the outcome base started to gain a little bit of back. We also found that the waist circumference, which is kind of a marker of what we call visceral fat, which is thought to be the type of fat that causes health problems, that was trending towards being lower at 12 months in the goal-directed arm. The people who were getting the incentives for going to Weight Watchers, for doing the different behaviors, we think that maybe they were doing them more even after the financial incentives stopped. So in other words, the people who were being financially incentivized to turn up and do the behaviors rather than according to how much weight they were losing may have gone deeper into their behavioral change than just focusing on the number of pounds or kilos you were losing. Right. Well, they maybe were more likely to continue those behaviors after the incentives ended and thereby having health benefits. But we need to do more studies to see because it wasn't quite statistically significant. One of the fundamental problems here is that we live in an obesogenic environment. I mean, if you look at kids' obesity, 
and you look at in a cohort sense, in the 1970s, I mean, parents haven't changed, children haven't changed, and yet obesity levels have changed with each 10 years gone by. In the 1970s, you didn't have the concentration of fast food outlets. You didn't have necessarily the screen time that you've got now, the marketing of unhealthy foods. You're not doing much for the obesogenic environment and you're sending people back into that environment which over the last 30 years has caused the obesity. Well, I totally agree with what you're saying in terms of genetics hasn't changed. There is something in the environment interacting with the genes that's causing obesity and certainly some of the factors that you mentioned in terms of sedentary and our food environment and there might be other factors that we don't even know that are causing the changes in the microbiome, maybe certain hormone disruptors and other environmental things that are really causing more obesity as well. And you're also right that for us to give financial incentives is not addressing that. Once someone has obesity, then we have to work really hard to counteract it like you would any other chronic disease. Just to tie the knot on this study, where does it leave you? You've spent money, you've had some effect, but it does seem to wear off in both groups, perhaps less where you would direct the money might change a little bit. But is this the game changer? I think that it's a tool in our toolkit that it might take multiple strategies. We're looking to see if it's cost effective. If it's cost effective, then I think it is one strategy. Now, I will say that close to 50% lost clinically significant amounts of weight. So that means 50% of people in our study did not. And that's very typical in all lifestyle-based treatments for obesity. And so that means that a lot of people might need medications or surgery or other treatments, just like we treat high blood pressure, just like we treat lung cancer, just like we treat a lot of other diseases, we might need to do other treatments in addition if it doesn't work in people. And we got to change the environment, absolutely. Naji, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Associate Professor Melanie Jay is at the Grossman School of Medicine at New York University. Well, Tegan, you're now going big picture. I'm trying at least, because many of the maladies that we cover here on the Health Report, including more than one in this episode alone, are linked to higher body weight. And losing weight is often presented as, as the answer, but how? Especially long term and at a population level. Let's get some insights from someone who's devoted their career to unpicking this. Stephen Allender is a national leader in obesity prevention from Deakin University. Welcome, Steve. Uh, Hello. So our conversations so far have been very much about individual interventions, paying individuals or talking about individual needs, but your work looks at more of a population level. That's right. And I think Dr Swan hit the nail right on the head that we do need treatment options for people who are living with overweight and obesity, but we are putting people back in the environments that have created that issue in the first place when those incentives run out. And so what we do is work with communities, groups of people to say, how is it we can make this a healthier people for our kids and our broader population to live? And and we're doing that work all around the world. And what we're seeing is the reduction in that onset of unhealthy weight, particularly amongst kids. So you were hearing there about that gradual increase in weight that people experience over a lifetime. We've seen the ability to stop that increase, particularly among primary school kids, which is where we first start seeing it emerge. Okay, that's, that sounds like something we want to hear more about. What sort of interventions are you talking about? Yeah, and, and this is where it gets a little bit tricky. So because there are so many environmental influences, our approach is to work with government and community to say, what are the changes we can make that will address the different complex changes? So our trials 
bring people together and that will include local government and schools and parents and, and say, well, this is what we know about how to create healthy weight amongst kids and it's the things we've talked about. It's improving diets, it's making kids more active, it's reducing screen time and it's improving sleep. And it's then saying, based on the context in which we're operating, what's possible here and what can be done? And so that, that is things like changing the way that food is presented, changing the types of food that are available to families and to kids, and then supporting communities to make changes to make the environment these kids are spending their time in much healthier. And so when we do that work, we do see improvements in um, the amount of water that kids drink, reductions in sugar-sweetened beverages, less takeaway food, better sleep, better uh, mental health, better physical health outcomes as well. Obviously, early intervention is really important if that's where the trajectory kicks off. But for many people, they might go through adolescence and early teens and that sort of thing at in you know relatively healthy weight. And then the trajectory starts to tick up as they're adults. So what about interventions at that level? That's right. And there's similar issues. For kids, we have more control over their environments. But if, if we think about how easy it is to get a high energy-dense, nutrient-poor food on your way home from work. It's really very easy to do. And yet there are many things that we can do that will improve the environments we make decisions in. So nobody makes a decision to be unhealthy, but many people will have stood in the supermarket and, and thought, I have to make a decision about what to eat here. I'd like to make a healthy choice, but it's quite hard to do. And so we see things like health star ratings being incredibly important the ways in which we fund public education, the ways in which we provide cost support and structure for the types of food we eat, and so on and so on. There are multiple changes we can make that make a healthy choice easier and normal. And if you think about it, two-thirds of the adult population now are living with overweight or obesity. So it is normal to be overweight or obese. So overweight and obesity is a normal reaction to an unhealthy environment and the shift we have to make is to create an environment where being healthy is the normal condition. That's really great at the population level and, for example, with the knee replacements, that really was what that was about. It's modelling how you could reduce this by up to a third if we made some changes at sort of a population level as to how much people weighed. Is there ever any place for individual responsibility or individual interventions? The deck is stacked against you as an individual when if you join a successful program and you lose some weight, if, if we take the financial incentives example, when those financial incentives are removed, when you go back to the normal living environment, you're going straight back into the situation where that gradual kilo creep happened in the first place. So the individual level is really important, but it needs to be supported by environmental changes. It needs to be supported by an environment where a healthy food is the most affordable food and the most accessible food. At a countrywide level, are there easy things that Australia should be doing or hard things that Australia should be doing based on your research? There's a huge amount of things we can do. And, and so one of, one of the tricky parts to this is actually there's quite a few very obvious things we could do if we had the will. And so restrictions on TV junk food advertising to kids in particular have proven to be successful in other countries. Um, taxation, particularly on sugary drinks, has proven to be incredibly powerful in other countries in reducing sugar consumption and demonstrably reducing weight gain. Now, that's quite a, it's a political challenge, but if we're genuinely serious about improving the health of our population, these are the sorts of things that will have an impact and have an impact quickly. Uh, and creating feedback loops so we have a better understanding of how healthy 
our population is, our kids are, and using that information to make change. So, so we hear statistics like a quarter of our kids are overweight and obese or two-thirds of our adults are overweight and obese, but that's an average. And, in fact, when we look at kids in some of our communities, the proportion of kids who are living in an unhealthy condition is actually far, far higher than that, and we need to support those communities to make a change so their kids can be healthier and we stop this creep right from the very start. Are there any countries that are really nailing it in this space? In the policy space, uh, Chile in particular is doing a great job in terms of particularly front-of-pack labelling and, and food reformulation. Um, the UK is making big uh, strides in this area as well in terms of incentivisation. What we see, though, is as the political winds change, so too does the support for those different policy changes. And one of the things our work shows is that committed communities are the ones that help sustain those sort of changes. If you ask any any set of parents and grandparents, they want their kids to be healthy. Mm. We have to give them the tools to make that possible. Steve, thanks so much for joining us. Great pleasure. Thank you. Steve Allender is Professor of Public Health at Deakin University's Institute for Health Transformation, and that's it for the Health Report this week. Yep, and just as we said during the COVID pandemic, which is actually still ongoing on Coronacast, it's communities that solve pandemics, is probably, and they're going to solve the obesity pandemic too, one hopes. Yep, we'll see you next week. See you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.